do rejoice that you are the God of grace. Grace is such a wonderful word, so profound. It's a word in, that in one level humbles us deeply because it reminds us of how helpless we are on our own. It reminds us that we have no good thing in us to offer you. It reminds us of our guilt. And it reminds us that we have only the hope that one would accomplish for us what we could not do on ourselves. And it is just as equally as profound then in what it tells us you did for us as it lifts our hearts up in praise, which we've sung about, realizing that you did do everything for us. You did. You did devise an infinitely wise plan that upheld your justice and glory and at the same time displayed your love and mercy as you bore the consequence of your own just and holy wrath against sin. You bore it yourself. And then you defeated death, our great enemy, that you might call a people to yourself in everlasting fellowship through the Son. We pray now that as we prepare our hearts for the table and as we look at these final hours of you accomplishing that work as recorded for us in the Gospel of Matthew, that you would lift our hearts up in praise and worship and unfold for us in new and fresh ways even that you are the God of grace and the God of glory. We commit our time to you. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. We'll go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26 once again. As we continue our walk through this gospel, Matthew chapter 26. We're going to look this morning at verses 47 through 56. 47 through 56. Uh, we probably won't complete our, this section this morning, so we'll get as far as we can get. I don't know exactly when we'll stop. It's when we run out of time. But we will get as far as we can this morning and finish it up next week. Now, as we come into this section, we're continuing to consider this unfolding glory of Christ in the work of redemption. This is the passion of Christ, the passion of Jesus Christ. We are watching unfold moment by moment, scene by scene, deed by deed, Christ, the eternal Son of God in flesh, laying down His life for us. He's laying it down in submission to the Father that we only briefly considered last week. He's laying it down in obedience to the Father and for our salvation. It is love for the Father, love for those given to Him by the Father that caused Him to submit his will completely in that hour of temptation and testing to take on what was necessary for our salvation. And it's absolutely crucial to grasp this point. As we go throughout the account here, and really through things that we've covered already too, of course, but particularly as we go through this and these final scenes in the life of Christ, it's really important, it's absolutely crucial to grasp that every single detail that's unfolded for us, and Matthew gives us lots of hints along the way, is a picture of Christ willingly laying his life down for his people. The Father is in absolute sovereign control over everything. Christ is in absolute perfect submission at every point. And that is crucial for us to see. 
Every act of obedience, every word of instruction, every display of submission and trust in the Father is for our salvation. And not only for our salvation, but also for our example. He is in his flesh the epitome, the example, the archetype, if you will, of what is required of humanity in our relationship and our response to God. Perfect, loving submission and our love for one another, love for a neighbor. So it's crucial that we keep that in mind as we continue to walk through this scene. Read with me, if you will, verses 47 through 56, and then we'll look at this unfolding scene a little bit more closely. Matthew 26, verse 47. Now while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, what you have come for, do what you have come for. And then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. And then all of the disciples left him and fled. Turn back with me, if you will, to verse 47. Verse 47. And let's notice in this first point the betrayal of Jesus. The betrayal of Jesus. And let's see also in Jesus' submission to this betrayal what submission to the Father looks like in light of the wicked designs of men. It says in verse 47 that while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, has come up to him. This then is the fulfillment of everything that Jesus had been preparing his disciples for. Everything that he told them would happen is now happening In dramatic fashion, notice what he says, while he was still speaking. Speaking what? Verse 46, when he was coming back to the disciples after his final prayer to the Father, he said, get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. No sooner then had he stood up and started walking to meet his betrayer in this act of perfect obedience to the Father, that Judas is coming towards them with this crowd and this people from the Romans and from the Jews. While he's still speaking, all of this is taking place. And notice how he describes Judas. And he's described this way several times. He says, Judas, one of the twelve. Judas, one of the twelve. As a matter of fact, only of Judas... Is it specifically said of this, one of the twelve? It's like the gospel writers want to emphasize that. 
They want to make a point of saying that he is one of the group. He's one of the disciples. He's one of the near companions. He was a close associate of Jesus, a supposed servant of Christ. One of the twelve. One of the twelve. If you remember back in verse 14, same thing. After the episode that is put here by Matthew, it says in Judas, one of the twelve named went to the chief priest and devised a plan to hand over the Son of God and the Son of Man to the enemies. This is emphasized here to highlight the treacherous nature of what Judas is doing. To highlight the wickedness of this act. This is Judas, one of the twelve. Now, we simply, in Matthew's account, leave the supper. Jesus is going from the supper of the table out to the Mount of Olives. They have sung their last hymn and they're traveling along. But John 18.2 reminds us that this was a place familiar to all of the disciples and to Judas himself. He says in John 18, let me just read that for you. He says, Now Judas, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. In other words, this was a common place. And we mentioned that briefly before this Garden of Gethsemane. He often met there with his disciples. And this is, a, is probably a note that could be missed. But this is, much as the description of one of the twelve highlights the treacherous nature of Judas's betrayal here it makes it all the worse why to say that Jesus often met there with his disciples is to say this it was a place of great intimacy that Jesus had with his followers it was a place no doubt that they met to pray it was a place they met no doubt where they received instruction from Christ where they received the loving care of Christ A place that maybe he took them at times to find rest from their busy schedule, showing himself to be the good and the compassionate and the gentle Savior that he was. This was no doubt a a place with all of those kind of memories in the past, and yet now it is the place Judas knows that he can find him to betray him. He does not come as they had come before He does not come in the same attitude and in the same conditions as they come before. Now he comes as a betrayer. The one who would treacherously hand over their leader. And he doesn't come alone. Matthew tells us that he came accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs. People from the chief priest and the elders of the people. We'll come back to this later, but notice how he describes them here. Swords and clubs. Swords and clubs. Instruments of violence. Instruments of violence that are used to subdue the rebellious, to subdue criminals, to execute justice. And here they come to Christ, the sinless Son of God, the spotless and pure Lamb. And not only of the Romans, the Romans are carrying the swords, the clubs are probably carried by temple officers, no doubt. That was a weapon that they used to maintain peace in the temple area. But here they come with these weapons of violence. And look who, look who Matthew highlights from the chief priest and the elders of the people. And again, what, what each of these details is doing is it's emphasizing the, the comprehensive nature of the betrayal that Jesus is experiencing 
and the suffering that he's undergoing for his people. Not only is Jesus then betrayed by one of his closest companions, but he's being betrayed by the leaders of his own people. You you see, he's being betrayed by those whom he loved. He's being betrayed by the ones who should have received him with joy. Now they're all mounted against him in hatred. This is the one when we looked at 1 Corinthians 10 that we noticed that he was that spiritual rock following this people. He was their God. And here they are mounted against him. The chief priests represent members of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. The elders are just those who are leaders among the the people, inhabitants of Jerusalem, particularly that area. And notice how else they came. They came not only with violence. They came not only from his own people, those who should love him, but notice that they're also coming to him at night, right? They travel through the night. It's still late. No no telling how exactly the time. It could be as late as midnight. It could be as early as 10 o'clock. But it's nighttime, and they're in the garden. It's dark, It's a place for them to meet in secret. And it's also a place then for these people and these crowds to come in secret. The fact that they come by night is no accident. It's something by design. They had to hide their deeds. Why? Well, there's probably many reasons. One very practical reason that they wanted to come at night is because they feared the people, right? Matthew had already mentioned that several times throughout. They feared the reaction of the people. As a matter of fact, they had to, up to this point, and no doubt this was part of the hatred that was behind their actions, they had to continually receive from Jesus humiliation before all of the people, and they had to just take it, and they couldn't do anything. Why? Because they were afraid. It says all the way back at the entrance into Jerusalem, in chapter 21, verse Six, after he had shown their ignorance and, in fact, even their wickedness by failing to acknowledge John the Baptist's own testimony of him, which they knew about, after reasoning that they had been trapped by his question and that they could not get out of it, they said that they feared the people. They feared the people. They said, but if we say from men, in other words, that, that his authority was not based on his divine person... His role, they said, we fear the people. They fear the people. So they were afraid to give a straight up answer. And even there was their hypocrisy. They feared the people. This is repeated throughout. When they heard a parable against them, which they knew was against them. Matter of fact, it says in verse 45 of 21, with the chief priests and Pharisees heard the parable, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. This is repeated throughout the account leading up to here. They had been receiving all of this humiliation by Christ as he humbled them, as he showed and exposed their ignorance and wicked motives, but they were afraid to do anything. They were They were afraid to let their true intentions be known. And they were afraid to let their actions here be known before the people because they knew that they would not accept it. They would not accept it. But I think there's another sense here in which they're coming by night. And it is is to demonstrate their own trying to conceal and hide from their own knowledge of their wicked deeds. Their own conscience 
that they know is wrong. They understand that they are being unjust. They know that they are betraying the law of God. They know that they are being hypocrites. There's a sense here, even at night, is to hide their deeds in their own minds, in a sense, even from themselves, seeking the covering of night. It's kind of the idea of maybe even when Nicodemus came to him at night. I think that's more strongly stated. Just, just one example in 1 Thessalonians 5, 7. He says, those who get drunk, get drunk when? At night. There's a covering for that kind of wickedness. A sense of covering and hiding of sin. And sin always tries to hide, doesn't it? It's the very nature of sin. It tries to stay away from the light. It tries not to be exposed. The darkness doesn't come to the light because when it comes to its light, the light, what? Its deeds are exposed as evil. John chapter 3. And so here they are. They're coming by night. They're coming with wicked intentions. They're coming unrighteously. And they're coming is a display of the betrayal, the absolute betrayal that Jesus subjected himself to. Again here, Matthew focuses on the Jewish element, the chief priests, the elders of the people. Luke adds scribes, officers of the people, and Mark also in this account. But John 18.3 fills out some more details for us, as John does along the way here. And he says, not only was he there with the Jewish leaders, but he was also there with a Roman cohort... Verse 3 of John 18, Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees and so forth, they were there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So this was a, this was a large crowd of people. A Roman cohort is a, is a section of Roman soldiers that's about 600 people. Maybe they were all there, at least most of them, half of them, but there were hundreds of these Roman soldiers. And in fact, although this is only a guesstimate, but when you add up all of the people present through all of the gospel writers, there may have been near a thousand people or so that were a part of this crowd. Definitely in the hundreds strong, maybe close to a thousand. And here they are all showing up at night with these torches and lanterns and so forth to arrest Jesus, with the Jewish leaders, no doubt, following the true leader of this crowd, Judas himself. Now, why did they bring these Roman soldiers? What was the point of that? Well, one point is that they couldn't put someone to death, and that was ultimately their intention, was to kill Jesus. They needed to get rid of Jesus. He was a thorn in their side, as it were. And so they needed to get rid of him. Their intention always was to kill him. Matthew 26, 4 tells us this. Way back before this, they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. That was always their goal. They were not interested in a trial. They were not interested in justice. They were not interested in any of those things. They had one object in mind that was to put him to death. It was to kill him. And so that's what they came for. And they needed the Romans to do that. They weren't allowed to try him and put him to death under their Jewish law, but they could under Roman law. And no doubt the Romans had a certain interest in this because as the Jews would have presented it to them and talked about the riot that would be started and so on and so forth, that they wanted to maintain the peace. And so they would have had an interest at that level. And it may even indicate the kind of charges that they brought against him that we'll see later 
uh, when he's actually crucified and handed over to the Romans, that he was an insurrectionist. He was dangerous to the peace of Rome. He was a threat to Caesar. And so with all of these lies and all of these manipulation, they come together, the Romans and the Jews, to gather Jesus and his, well, just to gather Jesus. Now the time and the size of this crowd really shows also the haste at which Judas and the leaders must have acted. Really shows the haste at which they must have acted. I mean, you remember, we're only talking about a relatively short amount of time, maybe a couple hours, a little bit more at most. He left somewhere near the end, probably near the end of the supper. It was at that time he would have gone out to the Jewish leaders to inform them where Jesus was going, or Jesus was going to be later with his disciples. In that amount of time, the, the leaders had to get together, their representatives. They had to grab their torches and so forth. They had to go inform the Roman leaders and gather that group together and get all meted together and to come out and find them. So there's a great amount of haste, a great amount of some planning that had gone in beforehand, but it shows the urgency at which everyone is acting. The absolute urgency. One old writer said this, Thus we see how diligent wicked men are in the accomplishment of their evil designs, whilst good men are asleep and indifferent to godly and spiritual exercises. And so there's really even a contrast there. Here's Judas as being diligent in his iniquitous plans, in his plans of evil against the Son of Man. And what are the disciples doing? They were sleeping all this time. Couldn't stay awake. Couldn't hold their eyes open, even though they knew that Jesus was undergoing a great emotional and spiritual battle. And yet Judas had no problem at all. Obviously, all of them were very very diligent in their task at hand. And there's really a sense there here then where this whole crowd is representing really the world against Christ. It's the opposition. They're all united. Everybody's there against Jesus, all for different motivations, all with different reasons, all with different plans, but there they are, ready to take Christ away. And they came with a well-worked plan. Notice verse 48. It says, now he who was betraying them. So this is really kind of like a parenthesis. So he's going to step back and say, this, this has already been prepared for what's going to happen. At what point they worked it out, who knows? Probably just moments or an hour or so before, but they'd worked it out. It says in verse 48, now he who was betraying him gave them a sign. Whomever I kiss, he is the one sees him. And again, as I mentioned, every detail is meant to highlight the treachery of the event. Every detail. Why did they need a sign? Didn't the Jews see him? Wasn't he in the temple each day, as he's going to mention later, teaching the people? Didn't they know what he looked like? Well, of course they did. The sign, in all likelihood, was for the Roman soldiers, not so much for the Jews themselves. The Roman soldiers, who would not have had much familiarity with him, who would not have recognized him. Remember also that it was night. There was likely a full moon, so there was some light. But even still, it was night. It would have been easy, and the confusion and mayhem that they surely expected would happen to get, grab the wrong person. And so they needed a sign. They needed to make sure they got the right one, the right person. And so Jesus chose a sign, or excuse me, Judas chose the sign. Judas chose it. 
And that's important to notice here. This was not one that was foisted on him. This is not one that somebody suggested and they had options. Judas, it welled up from within his own heart and his own mind to come up with this sign. Whomever I kiss, he is the one sees him. This is a sign of intimate friendship. Intimate friendship. The word behind kiss, you'll know this word, um, just so you can put it in the category that you've heard before, is phileo. It's a, it's a verb form of a word. And here, here it means that it's just it's to kiss him. It was a sign of greeting. It was a sign of intimate affection. It was one that you gave to your intimate friends. It wasn't everybody you kissed. It wasn't the fake kind of Hollywood kiss up in the air somewhere. It was like it was a true embrace of friendship and relationship and camaraderie. It was, it was an affectionate sign. It was a sign of a love within family. It's mentioned in Matthew 10, 37. It's a sign of the father's love for the son. It's the same term that's used when it speaks of the, the father who went out and saw his son, the prodigal son, far off. And he went out and he kissed him. He kissed him. In Titus 3.15, it's the sign of love among brethren, Christian brethren. This is a sign of intimacy. It is a sign of affection. And Judas could have chosen any sign, any sign, but he chose this one. Why this one? Why a kiss? Why such a display of affection? Well, again, there could be multiple reasons for that. It could be that he simply wanted to arouse the least amount of a suspicion. He wanted to come in there charging, and he thought maybe the easiest way to do this is to, to pretend to be friendly. There's no way to know exactly why he chose the sign, but it was certainly a sign of his heart that it was absolutely hardened to any affection for Christ, absolutely conditioned to be devoid of any love for Christ. And it shows then that all of Judas's earlier commitments, his seeming act of faithfulness, were really done with the wrong heart, weren't they? He never had any love for Christ. He never truly loved Him. He never had any affection for Christ. He never had any act of obedience and faithfulness or submission that was from the fruit of a relationship with Him of love and of faith. And this then is the condition, again, of many Many within the church, many within the church. And Scripture would warn us that it would be only an increased reality till the end of the age as the gospel is watered down and people had their ears tickled. That wasn't even the case here with Judas. He heard and witnessed truth incarnate, and yet he was still able to function among that group, even the most intimate group, with an absolutely hypocritical heart, with no love for Christ at all. Again, this is a condition that's common to fallen man. Paul warns, even the elders, you're familiar with this, even the elders, the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. How shocking must those words have been to those elders. How shocking must those words have been to those who were called faithfully to shepherd Christ's church. And yet, here Paul tells them that no, no, even from among yourselves, some are going to arise and they will be false disciples. Calvin well mentions in commenting on this verse that this is 
a reminder of our own need as the body of Christ to worship Christ in sincerity and truth. In other words, to watch over your own heart. To make sure that what we do, we do in true love for Christ. Christ knows those who are his own. Let's listen to this one warning in Hebrews before we move on for this. This is Hebrews 3.12. Just listen. He says this. The writer of Hebrews in one of the warning passages throughout, he says this. Take care, brethren, that there not be brethren. He's referring to those who had made some kind of profession of faith here. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So Judas causes us to be sober, doesn't he? He causes us to be reflective of our own lives. That in spite of his privileges, associations, his appearance, he had no love for Christ. And what was at the heart of Judas's problem? And really is at the heart of all false faith and false belief. It is this. He was totally self-interested. He was self-interested. Whatever, whatever other things might have been displayed in his life or he may have professed or said, at the heart of it, Judas was concerned about Judas. Judas loved Judas. He loved Judas's plans. He loved Judas's comfort. He loved Judas's ideas, Judas's honor. And everything that he did ultimately was for himself and it was not for love of Christ. Jesus didn't perform as Judas wanted. He rejected, so he rejected him. Jesus turned out for Judas to be a disappointment. He fell flat in all of Judas's anticipations, and so he turned. And so again, all of the signs of commitment were really motivated by self-interest and not by love. Here's the deal. Judas only wanted Christ for what he could get. He only wanted Christ for what he could get. And when there was a price to pay, Christ was no use to him anymore. Matter of fact, there was a kind of hatred that he had for him. A kind of loathing, a despising of Jesus and everything that he stood for because he wasn't what Judas wanted. Unless we think this is something, of course, that just happens to Judas, it isn't. That is the heart of all false disciples. Listen to how Jesus spoke about it earlier. You're familiar with this. The seed that was sown on the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. And that could be even comparable in some sense to Judas being chosen out, seeing the ministry of Christ, being chosen out, being called to be one of the disciples. And so he really had a certain privilege. And no doubt he recognized that privilege at some level. But his view of that privilege was not an attitude of gracious thankfulness to God, but it was... How is this going to work out for me and for my advantage? In verse 21, And so he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And so that's really what it's like. Right? As soon as there's a price to pay for a false convert, as soon as there's trouble, as soon as there's cost, well, Jesus is just not as interesting at that point. And this is the kind of shallow commitment, particularly, let me note this here, that's bred from a shallow gospel. Now, this wasn't even the case in Judas's situation because he is with the living word, the incarnate word. 
But it is to say this, that a heart like Judas's and those who are like the ones that come on the rocky soil are just bred and that kind of commitment is just fostered when it's under an environment where Christ is wrongly represented as somebody whose only or main goal in life is for your good, to fix your problems, to be a help and a guide in life. And as soon as troubles come along, if you come to Jesus in that way, if you come to him just because, hey, you know, Jesus is going to help me with the hard things in life and he'll carry it with me. Hey, I'm going to come to Jesus because then maybe my marriage will get better. Then maybe my job will get better. Then maybe things will go better for me in life. But there are thousands and millions of people who come to Jesus for that reason. And it's supported by the church environment that they're in. And so that kind of heart is just fostered. It's just fostered. And when hard times come or when Jesus fails to perform, I tried Jesus. You've seen those bumper stickers, try Jesus, give Jesus a try. You don't give Jesus a try. You submit to him as Lord. And you live your life in thankful gratitude that the Lord would forgive one so sinful and unworthy of it as ourselves and raise us up to a place of calling us his own. That's what faith is. Jesus or Judas had none of that. He had none of that. And so the warning here is just this. Make sure your love and your Christian activity, your service for Christ, is done with a believing heart and a love for Christ. Just be reminded of that. Be reminded of that. Think of that. Do I act in my Christian life and service out of gratitude and trust in Christ because He is Lord and I am thankful for the salvation that I have received? Is that why? That is the truest mark of spiritual life, by the way. What is the truest mark of spiritual life? It's not emotions when you sing songs. What's the truest mark of spiritual life? It's not being involved with all the kind of Christian things that you can be. It's not listening to Christian radio. It's not memorizing all the Casting Crown songs. It's not any of that stuff or whatever your group might be. It's none of that stuff. It's not liking Reformed rappers. It's not being going out on Christian camps. What is the truest mark of spiritual life? I would submit to you this is the truest mark of spiritual life that Jesus just demonstrated in the garden. It is obedience to Christ out of love for him. That's the truest mark of spiritual life. At the end of the day, do I obey him because I love him? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's not the one that says I've come to know him, but the one who keeps his commandments. Why did Jesus do what he did in the garden? I always do what the Father commands me, John 14, 31, to show the world that I love him, to show the world that I love him. Judas didn't have any of that, none of that. And so when he was disappointed and when he was let down by Jesus because it was all self-interested and self-motivated, he turned, he turned easily. That's a deep act of betrayal and suffering by the Lord. But I want you to notice something else here too. This whole scene, this whole act of Judas, and especially even this kiss, shows this. The satanic nature of hatred for Christ. It shows that. It shows the satanic nature of hatred for Christ. Now, Satan isn't mentioned in this scene. He's not even mentioned in the scene at Gethsemane. But he's active at every point. 
We already know, the writers have already told us that Satan had entered into the heart of Judas. In other words, Judas was completely under the control of the devil himself in these moments. It had already entered into the heart of Judas. So when we look at Judas and even his thinking and his actions, while it is Judas and he's culpable, I'll mention that later, it is at the same time to say Judas has become in this moment the face of Satan himself. Completely under his control. Everything that he's doing is a demonstration of the true nature of Satan's designs. Whatever mask he wears, this is his design to kill Christ, to express pain and suffering to Christ. And Jesus does acknowledge this actually in Luke twenty two fifty three. He says this, This hour and the power of darkness are yours. They're yours. Now by doing this, he's demonstrating also his complete control over the situation. Complete control. But he says, right now it's yours. And you know what? That's, that's necessary for us to know. Because as evil rises, we need to understand that Christ is in complete control. As a matter of fact, even the activity of the Antichrist, even his destruction and the killing of the saints is under the sovereign hand of the risen Christ. Let me just give you one example of this. It says this. It was Revelation 13, 5, just to illustrate this. He says, speaking of the Antichrist here in the beast, there was given to him... A mouth speaking arrogant words and the blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he says later that in that 42 months it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Verse 7. To make war with the saints and to overcome them. Who gave him that authority? It wasn't the Antichrist who gave him that authority. He wouldn't have limited it to 42 months. It would have been forever. It was God who gave them that authority. What did God give him the authority for? He gave him the, them the authority to kill the saints, his people, part of his plan. Part of his plan. So it is here. So it is here. The power of darkness is here. It has been given for a period, and it is by his own sovereign plan designed to kill Christ. Now, in a broader sense, It's not only Judas, but all of those of the crowds here are directed by Satan and his demons. Remember, he'd already called the leaders. He said, what? You're of your father, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father, which is what? To murder. And in that context, too, he's addressing their desire to kill him, to put him to death. There's a sense when even the Romans are under the demonic influence because Satan is the the demons are the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, Ephesians chapter 2. So this is, this is really a satanic activity. It's not just the betrayal of Judas. It's the act of Satan, activity of Satan. But now saying that, and this is important to add, is not to say that Judas, the Jewish leaders, the Roman soldiers, or any other sinner outside of Christ is somehow less guilty for their sin. Judas is completely and 100% morally and spiritually and in God's law legally culpable for his sin and rejection of Christ. The fact is, sovereignty and responsibility is ultimately a mystery that nobody in this room and the best minds given to the church can fully understand in all of its detail. 
But what Scripture is very clear about is this, that each sin, each act of apostasy, and each act of unbelief is because of the sinner's decision to act on that. One has said it this way, and I think just succinctly and clearly, referring to Judas. Judas was already possessed by Satan, and therefore what he did was no longer under his control. Yet, it was under the compulsion, and this is the important part, it was under the compulsion of his own unbelief, greed, and ambition that he had opened himself up to Satan's presence, end quote. Yes, Satan was involved. Yes, he was possessed. Judas's own iniquitous heart made it so. His own heart made it so. And this really then is a, the climax in some ways of the cosmic battle that was already hinted at back in the garden. Right? You will bruise him on the heel. He will bruise you on the head. You're going to cause suffering to the one who will redeem those who have fallen into sin, God's image bearers. But he's ultimately going to crush you. And this really is the climax of that promise all the way back in Genesis 3.15. This is part of his bruising Satan's plan to bruise him on the heel, to cause him suffering and to make it the most painful as possible. And so when we see this sign, now he was betraying him, gave him a sign, whomever I kiss, he is the one. This is a sign that doesn't happen by coincidence. It wasn't just spur of the moment. It is by design. It is intentional to be the most hateful, painful, wicked act of treachery to cause and afflict the most pain that is possible against the Son of Man. As he's giving himself up to be sacrificed. That's what it is. It's got all of the hatred of hell behind it. All of the combined hatred of Satan and his demons behind this kiss. It's a kiss of hatred. A kiss of hatred. And Judas says beyond that, not only... Not only is it the kiss, but he says, seize him. Look at what he says in 48, seize him. And this really accentuates it. I mean, there was no need for him to say that. The very purpose of them being there was to take him away. But it shows this strong kind of urgency that he has in his heart to make sure this is done and nothing fails. When I do this, seize him, grab him, quick. Don't let him get away. Don't let him get away. What's he driven by here? Disappointment, hatred of Christ out of that disappointment, unbelief, and greed. Remember, he did all of this for 30 pieces of silver. Greed. There may have been a fear even somewhere lurking in his heart that if Jesus got away, guess what? He wouldn't get paid. They'd want their money back. So he's grabbed them, seized him. His greatest act of treachery, not only in this scene, but in the history of the world, is taking place then under this sign of the greatest affection and honor. And so he goes up to him in verse 49 as he's there with the crowds. And immediately Jesus went, or Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and he kissed him. He kissed him. Again, incalculable evil. And the word that he uses here for kissed him when he actually does the deed is actually an intensified form of the word before. So in other words, it's, it's like saying not only did he just give him a kiss that would have been a normal sign of affection and companionship and relationship, but it was 
a kiss with extra energy behind it, as it were. It was a stronger embrace. It was a, a kiss that was meant to give an even intenser form of love. I mean, there's simply no way that language or circumstances could highlight any more than what we have here of this act of betrayal that the Son of God submitted himself to. And that's exactly, again, what we're seeing. Christ saying, I'll endure this. I'll endure this, though they'll make it as bad as they possibly can. It is my Father's plan. And I want you to notice this as well. There's a, there's a sort of carefree and, and innocence in his greeting. Hail, Rabbi! It shows a familiarity and a, friendless, a friendliness. And no doubt, this was the same kind of friendliness that marked their relationship up to their, this point. And remember, it was only a few hours earlier that evening that Jesus was washing his feet with the rest of the disciples. There's a, there's a kind of freedom that he had even to go up to Jesus. And I think that it's important for us to notice here, this really says more about Jesus than it does about Judas. Judas is act of betrayal, but this is the kind of relationship that Jesus had with him. What a gentle Savior. What a kind and a gracious Lord and Master they had that they had this kind of relationship with him that he could even feel the freedom to go up and do this. And probably nobody would have thought that unusual if the circumstances would have been different, if he wouldn't have been there with the crowd. And I think there's an encouragement with that as well. What could encouragement could come out of that kind of scene? It's this, that Jesus is that same kind of Savior that receives sinners. That's God's attitude towards sinners. It's really, in some ways, even reflected toward Judas in his act of treachery. He doesn't... He doesn't, he doesn't burst out with invective statements. He's later going to call him a friend, granted a muted form of that word, a muted title, but nonetheless, he refers to him in friendly terms. And here is the heart of the Savior. This is really a reflection in some ways, even of Jesus in uh, 11, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I'm gentle of heart. He's gentle towards the sinner. And yet Judas is here turning that around and taking that gentle heart of the Savior, taking that humble heart of the Savior that receives the weak and the downcast, that receives sinners, and he's turning it all around. It's just another level of the treachery. He's taking the gentleness of Christ and the glory of Christ's compassion, and he's turning it around to be an act of wickedness against him. Almost as if he's using that compassion or trying to against Jesus himself. Amazing, really amazing. However, Jesus, as compassionate as he is, he rejects hypocrisy. He knows exactly what Judas is up to. And everyone who tries to fake a relationship with Jesus. 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those who are his. He knows. He knows when it's real. He knows when it's not real. He knows when it's fake. He knows here with Judas. And I want you to notice this as well. Innocence and sincerity are often masked for evil intent. In fact, you could put it this way. Every good and effective lie and deception has the strongest presentation of sincerity and righteousness. The more sincerity, the more goodness, the more righteousness that can be mixed in with evil intent and deception and wickedness, the greater and the more effective the deception more smiles, the greater the ability to cover over lies and true intention. And so it is here. It's, this, is, this is the masterful 
of all lies and deception here. This is how sin works. That's why we must be discerning, beloved, and not judge with superficial judgment, but with righteous judgment. This is all superficial. Let me mention this. An old writer, actually Chrysostom, an old 4th to 5th century, uh, he lived in the 4th and 5th century, said this. He, Judas, was emboldened by his master's gentleness, which all the more was sufficient to shame him and deprive him of all excuse, for that he was betraying one so meek. And so here it is, this great act of, this great act of treachery, this great act of, of sin against the sinless one. Well, there's so much more. We will finish it up next week. What we would notice this week as we come into the table is this. This is Jesus laying down his life for you. It's him laying his life down for me and for every sinner. And if you hear this morning, and certainly we know this is some, if you are here this morning and you don't have that love for Christ, regardless of whatever kind of thing you might have on your outside, Jesus knows those who are his, right? He knows those who are his. He receives every sinner, no matter how much wickedness you have committed in your life to this point. He receives every repentant sinner, but he absolutely rejects every act of hypocrisy. And so, for this morning as we come into the table, we who know him are humbled to the ground, are filled with worship and fresh expressions of obedience and commitment to Christ who laid down his life for us and we receive these elements with that kind of heart. But for those of you who do not know him, have not yet come to that place, this gentle Savior is also a just judge. And we'll see that a little bit more later. But understand, now is the day to heed his voice and come to him. Let me pray for us and then the ushers will come forward and Kathleen, I think, will play for us. And then as they hand out the elements and as the piano plays, go ahead and just take that time to spend with the Lord. Spend some time with him in fellowship, confession, praise and worship. And then we'll take them together. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for... Your great plan of redemption that is so glorious. How much of your glory is displayed? You decided in eternity past as you, Father, determined to save and you, our Lord Jesus Christ, as the eternal Son, determined to come and save in obedience to the Father and you, Holy Spirit, to take that work of Christ and apply it to a new people, giving them life, repentance, faith, hope creating a new humanity out of the humanity that fell. How glorious and wonderful is the cross. Our whole lives could be spent in study and meditation and we'll never get to the bottom of it. But what a glorious study and pursuit it is. And so we come with that heart and we ask you by your spirit to just awaken us even more to see that glory and and give to you our lives and submission and obedience and trust. And for those here again, Lord, who are still have the veil over their eyes, they see no glory. They have no repentance. They're not driven to obedience. Would you grant them this day to have that veil removed and give them life? I pray this in your name, Christ. Amen.